Welcome to the Law Firm Growth Podcast, where we share the latest tips, tactics, and strategies for scaling your practice from the top experts in the world of growing law firms. Are you ready to take your practice to the next level? Let's get started. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Law Firm Growth Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Jan Roos, and I am very, very excited to speak to today's guest. We have Brooke Lively, who is the founder and CEO of CathCap on today to discuss one of the most important topics, if you're being serious about your business, which is your money and how much money you're getting today, how much money you would eventually get if you want to exit the law firm and how not to exit on bad terms. So thank you so much for coming on the show, Brooke. Thanks for having me, Jan. I'm excited. Yeah, I'm super uh, stoked too. So we actually had a really awesome pre-chat. I had to hit record because I didn't want to, uh, you know, I'm bad at repeating things if I've heard them one time. But like, it's it's one of those situations where I think it's so important what you're working on right now. And I did find out until we had this pre-chat, but you actually have a book coming out, don't you? I have. It's book number like six, but I'm so excited about it because it's really kind of on the forefront and the cutting edge of what is happening in the legal industry. It's all about selling your law firm. And this is something that we haven't seen as much in the past, right? Mm -hmm. People had law firms, they were really practices. You would kind of buy in and out as a partner. The firm itself didn't have a ton of value. You would kind of milk it while you were a partner and then you'd sell your thing back and maybe get out what you invested in it. Right. But the legal industry is changing. Mm -hmm. They're starting to deregulate. Non-attorney law firm ownership is coming. It is here in Arizona. It's here in Utah. Though I hear rumors that might be going away, but you know they haven't rolled it back yet. And there is big money. Private equity is already doing everything they can to finance case costs. They're going to be right there to buy law firms. So we're going to see law firms as a huge asset going forward. Yeah. I love that. And it's something that's come up once or twice in the podcast so far. But one of the most exciting things I can say potentially happening to the industry. And like, if we look at what happened to stuff like I think dental is the uh, example that I've heard the most about at least, but you know, I'm sure you've probably done a lot more thinking on this than I have. But for people who aren't familiar, like, again, not asking you to pull out the crystal ball here, but what has historically happened with private equity entering similarly credentialized industries in in the recent past? You know, it's private equity. There's some good and bad. They, they, private equity isn't great at, at culture. They are great at squeezing every dime out of something. So they're going to do the least amount of work in the most efficient way to get the result. That being said, it's a great opportunity to exit. There are people who say that it's going to be awesome for just run-of-the-mill people in the U.S. because there will be better access to legal services because it'll drive pricing down because it will make it more of a commodity. I think for some things that may be true, but I think those really specialized practice areas, those people who truly take their practice to an art form are going to rise above and will still be able to charge a premium and will have a successful practice. But I think you're going to see a lot of consolidation happen. Yeah, I mean, think about... I don't know, is mint dental big for you where you live? Did you say mint? Mint, M-I-N-T. Oh, no. I mean, it's funny because it's like, you know, I actually just started, it's funny, I recorded a podcast on this, but I'd like, you know, semi-professional, like regional multi-office location dentist. I was just blown away by how good their procedures were. And it was like, that was from 
growing up for, I mean, the guy's name was Dr. Pulaski back, back up in Massachusetts and totally different level of service and totally different level of professionalism. So it's like, I think if that's sort of what we can kind of come to expect, I can see how those things could be better for the average consumer. But yeah, I mean, I think in a lot of ways too, just, I think just like the constant advance of progress, innovation, capitalism, finance, all of these kind of things just leads to a very, very tough, it's getting harder and harder to be mediocre every year. <laughs> it is. This is going to impact marketing. It's going to be much more expensive to get clients because you're going to have those big behemoths, those big firms. I mean, you think if you're a PI firm, you think it's hard to compete against Morgan and Morgan now. Mm. Wait until you're a divorce firm and there's somebody, there's, you know, a 600 pound elephant. Yeah. <laughs> Try competing against KKR if you think you're the guys across yeah. the street are tough. When KKR is the the divorce firm and the, you know, trusted estate firm and the... So, yeah, I think we need to be prepared. I think we need to make hay while the sun shines. Yeah. And prepare our firms. Yeah. And I'll also say this too, just to kind of highlight for, for everyone too. I mean, we're able to kind of talk about this in an optimistic sense, because I think there's one way to say, oh my gosh, the sky is falling with this information. But the truth is, if you're a good operator, not only do you have an opportunity to liquidate and whenever this ends up happening, and who's to really say when that happens, but that skill sets five to 10 years. Okay. Five to 10 years. All right. We got, we got some runway here. Yeah. So you have that much time to build an asset, but at the same time too, it's like, you're also in what, you know, what I guess these private equity guys or any, you know, venture capital or any real investment would call an operator, right? And that's something that's also in super, super high demand. But I think what happens in the next five or 10 years is going to determine that. And I think what we're about to switch topics to is going to show like kind of the nitty gritty on, you know, what would actually make a law firm owner or a law firm an attractive target. And, you know, what these people like to see, which again, like not to say that this is courting a specific group of people, but this is just how the market works. Well, I, I think what we need to like take a step back and realize mm. is that the same thing that a buyer wants is the in a, in a law firm to purchase mm. is the exact same thing that you as an owner wants. They want a firm that is profitable and doesn't take a ton of time and effort and stress from the owner. Okay, who doesn't want that firm? I want that firm. You want that firm. Every attorney I know wants that firm, right? So building that firm, whether you're building towards an exit or whether you're building towards keeping it forever, it's a profitable firm that doesn't take as much out of you. So let's go ahead and build that firm. So we're starting to talk about what best in class looks like. What does best in class look like from a financial standpoint? You know, we talk about running law firms on the rule of thirds. And that's a starting place. And then we customize it for different types of practices. But, you know, one third of your revenue should be going to pay your people. One third of revenue should go to your operating expenses. And that includes marketing. So, you know, if you're spending 25% of revenue on your marketing, you're not going to have very much to pay for things like rent, phone, software. And one third should be going to profit. You may take some of that profit. That, that profit goes to a number of things. It does go to pay taxes and it you know, will cover some bonuses for key employees. And you may take it and reinvest it in the firm. So you know, when I say one third goes to profit, that's not necessarily the owner's going to take home one third. It depends on what you're doing with your firm. What does best in class look like? And what is it going to take for you to make your firm look like that? Yeah. 
That's an awesome benchmark to shoot for too. And I, I know like, again, these these numbers are, are awesome for law firms, but it's similar for kind of service businesses in different types of places. Like if you're listening to this and like, oh, geez, that would be nice. Like just you know, know that there's a path there. And the thing that's kind of crazy too, is that you're working with firms that are a lot larger than a solo in most instances, right? Like I know a lot of the work that you're doing is in the seven, eight figure range. And normally those are higher overhead firms than a lot of the firms that are running. So if you're a solo and you're not doing those numbers, just know that there's ways to kind of get to this and it's something really, really good to shoot for. So that's that's super interesting. So let's talk about what kind of gets into that, right? So if we have a situation when somebody's coming to you, you're usually taking a look at people's numbers, right? Like, can you just tell me how you're you're generally like, you know, what you're looking for when somebody comes in and says, you know, Brooke, I need some help. You know, we're stalled out. We can't figure out how to do. So we normally work with firms that want something more. They want to grow. They've hit a ceiling. There's something going on and they're not getting what they want out of their firm. So what we do is just like an attorney can look at a legal brief and read it and it tells them where to start looking. We look at a firm's financials and it tells us where to start digging and asking questions. And we do it based on data. Like, what does the data say? Where are the problems? Where are there inefficiencies in the firm? Are our people not producing enough? You know, is it because their comp packages aren't aligned? Is it because we're not incentivizing them properly? Is it because they're not being held accountable? Is it because work is stalled out? Is it because they don't have enough cases? You know, is it a marketing problem? How do we go in and find the problem and then look for a solution? And we can't always, we don't always have the solution. Sometimes we're like, oh, this is a marketing problem. And here's where the problem is. Go to your marketing company, tell them. But at least you've identified it, right? Yeah, so it's all about digging in and finding those inefficiencies. I think it's such an important place to start from because I think also just as the complexity of a business gets larger and larger, it's like you have a lot of potential areas to focus on. And I can imagine like how overwhelming it gets when, you know, maybe you have simultaneous challenges. Like you could have, you know, maybe your ARR isn't where it's supposed to be. Maybe you're have people that owe you money. Maybe you have, you know, an employee that's been keeping you up at night or your marketing campaign. But like knowing where these things are is like such an awesome like, ground set to like focus on these different things too. But I don't think a lot of people have that kind of clarity. So it's like, I can just imagine how people are in the situation. Like, look, we always, always love to talk about growing a law firm, how awesome it is. But like you get to the point where your growth is kind of outpaced what you're able to do. So at what point does looking at things from a finance perspective become a bigger problem than your average law firm managing partner, founder, et cetera, is willing to take on for growth? When does that become a bigger risk? Well, let's face it. Most attorneys went to law school because they were promised no numbers, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And let's discuss law firm math. Law school math was what is one third of any number. Advanced <laughs> yeah. law school math was what is 40% of any number. PhD level, I do have one client that gets 45%. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so for most of our clients, finance is not their natural wheelhouse. Not that they can't do it. Not that they're not smart enough. They are. It's just, that's not where they have spent their time and effort and training. They've done it learning how to practice law. That's where their passion is. So at some point, numbers start to get big. They start to get a little intimidating. The questions start to get harder to answer. I had a client one time, he was growing so incredibly fast. He went to a bank to get a loan. 
They said, we need the pro formas. He comes back. I had prepped this entire loan package for him. He comes back in a panic on the phone with me. I'm never going to get this loan. The whole form is going to a blah, 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 blah. He was like doubling every year. And he was doing about $2 million at this point. And I'm like, dude, you know next year's budget that we did? He's like, yeah. I'm like, that's what they want. He was like, wait a minute. Seriously? They wanted the budget? Why didn't they just ask me for the budget? And those things are really intimidating. They're hard. And so the bigger you get, the less you want to look like a dummy that you don't know something, the less likely you are to ask questions. And the more that's going to inhibit the growth and the profitability of your firm. We start working with firms, sometimes around a million, normally closer to when they hit $2 million, because they need that strategic advice. You know, up until that point, you can kind of get where you want to go because where you want to go is just bigger, right? Mm-hmm. Once you hit that point, we need a plan. We want to go from here to there. And this is what there looks like. And we need to know what types of cases, how fast they need to come in, how we need to ramp up our hiring. What is that going to look like for our leases if we're actually still in the office? So how do we need to negotiate our leases? to accommodate our growth. Because yeah, that's part of the strategy. It's part of your financial strategy. And we need to be looking at this very holistically. Yeah, it's one of those things is like, you know, I feel like it's easier to plan the first part of it. And like the bigger things get, the more custom and like a plan that you really need from a complexity thing. I just want to take a little aside to point out too, because it's not only being able to see these things, it's being able to understand what options are available. And chances are, if you're not already in that room, you're not going to know that you have the lease is something that's negotiable. You're not going to know what options you might have for a line of credit. You're not going to know what they meant when they said pro forma. So I think in the same way that people hire attorneys to get through a very specific way of dealing with it, it's, you know, the world of, of finance is higher level stuff. It's, it's its own little guild, you know, it's like you have to have the, the ability to kind of interpret this stuff. Yeah. And, you know, let's face it, we specialize in law firms. We see a lot of law firms across the country, and that does two things for us. One, we've tried it over here, so we know it works, so we can try it in your firm. And or we've seen it over here, so we can try it over there. And the other thing is, is it gives us a lot of benchmarks. We know what's happening out there. And that's amazing. When you're running your firm, you're really kind of in a silo. Mm-hmm. So having exposure to someone who has exposure to 50, 100 law firms at any given moment is a huge advantage because you're not reinventing the wheel every day. Yeah, it's crazy too. Sometimes it's like, I just, um, the benchmarks thing is, is super, super top of mind because we deal with a lot of people with this on just like the you know sales and intake perspective of things. And there's sometimes we have people that are, you know, they're batting 500 and they're like, oh my God, this is terrible. It's like, no, dude, you're in the hall of fame. You don't realize that. Or they're expecting to have numbers that are way too high on something that there's, you know, they're doing very, very well on. They should be like, okay with, but yeah, it's tough. Cause if you don't have the, the frame of reference, like, you know, how are you supposed to, to make decisions on stuff? Like it's such a crazy thing, but I think it's also interesting too, to kind of think about how a firm goes from solo, which is like, I think, you know, people start out in a very unpredictable place. But I think when people have their stuff together, you have, you know, predictable revenue, predictable expenses, 
you can forecast out to a percentage that people who are at lower levels, you know, waiting on things like referrals are just never really able to get to. But like when you have all your ducks in a row, you really can not to extend the baseball metaphor too much, call your own shot, right? So like what kind of certainty are these firms working? So once you hit that kind of 2 million level, we've got a lot of data and we are data driven. And we can absolutely predict with an amazing amount of certainty what revenue is going to look like. We can predict what expenses are going to be. We know what your case mix is going to look like, which enables us to say, you know what? These cases are not very profitable for us. Can you go back to your marketing people and have them change the marketing a little, change that advertising? Because we want to change the case mix this way because your flat fee and these cases are more profitable than these cases. Hmm. You know, I've got contingency firms that are like, oh, you can't predict our revenue. I'm like, I'm telling you exactly what you're going to make in, you know, two years from today. Because I value a case the day it comes in. I know exactly what it's going to do because we've got statistical history. You know, with, with hourly firms, we can do the same thing. We know exactly what's going to happen. And we know when we're going off track and we can react to it. So it's just an amazing amount of information that if you're looking at it and if you know what to do with it, there are all these levers we can pull to make sure we stay on track. Yeah, 100%. And I want to do kind of a caveat too, because it's like, there is sort of the presupposition that we have enough information going in. Like it means a different thing to a firm that did 2 million last year, look at these numbers and a firm that did 20,000 last year. Cause you know, we start reading tea leaves and you get into the, you know, the law of small numbers and all that kind of stuff too. But you know, that's the thing that's, that's kind of crazy. And it's, it's, you know, it's, I was onboarding a, a new rep and I, I kind of had to explain, you know, what it's like working in the legal space the first time. And I had to kind of go all the way back to Bartleby the Scrivener, and like the importance of, you know, why the legal profession was formed as a separation from business. But it's crazy because this is the standard more than it's not for every single industry outside of this, you know? Yeah. You know, the data makes a difference and knowing it and having someone who can go in, pull it and analyze it and interpret it for you, because really, let's face it, it's a waste of most attorneys' time to do this. There is brain power that can be used better to benefit either your clients or your marketing team. Yeah, 100%. And it's like the other thing too, is just like, you know, when you have the data to kind of do this and again, just, you know, little shout out to anyone who's listening to this and think, wouldn't it be nice? Like that's where you want to think about where you're going, but it doesn't have to be a situation. Like, you know, you have to realize that the people that are growing every single year, it's, it's happening for a reason. It's not that these guys are, have some secret whiz bang marketing channel that you don't have available to, or this, you know, fantastic pool of applicants or they're just, you know, making bigger bets. It's like, you know, it's, it moves it from, from pardon my French, balls to brains in terms of when you're making these investments. Yeah. You know what they've got? They've got a legal pad. Yeah. And the receptionist is writing down every time a potential new client calls and how they found them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like this, we're not talking when we, when I talk about, you know, data, I'm not talking about getting HubSpot or some major software to track this. I'm talking about legal pad and pen. Mm. Talking about Excel, talking about just starting to get any kind of data, track it all. Your practice management system has an immense amount of information in there. It's just a matter of knowing what you want to go in and get and finding it. It's all in there. 
Yeah, hundred percent. And like, also say this too for people that aren't quite at that like multi seven or multi seven figure stage yet. It's like these are the kind of things that make a huge difference when you're doing it. Just you know, like I honestly, I always default to the the marketing and sales information too. But it's just like the fact that I think a lot of people will hold themselves back because they're not doing it at the absolute Fortune five hundred level of analytics. But it's like you just got to get started. At the end of the day, and it's a lot of people have zero because they can't have a hundred. Absolutely. And let me tell you. So I'll just use marketing as an example. Yeah. I tracked all of our marketing numbers and we are data driven. I tracked all of our marketing stuff on a spreadsheet until we were well over seven figures. Mm. Yeah. Mainly because I didn't know how to make our software work. Um, but, yeah. but yeah, no, that's, I mean, yeah, Google Sheets probably is is the, the secret hitter for a lot of firms. I'm not going to say if uh, any marketing companies presently in the call are... You say Google Sheets a lot too, but again, it's just about kind of having something. So switching back, so you know, if we're, if we're trying to get to a point where we have something profitable, and I'll just kind of have one last thing too. It's like you know the big moves that you see people make in the market. That's going to be based on data. And if you're at the point where you're not really sure whether you should make a high or not, like just know that there is a place where you can know whether that's a good decision or not. And that's how the people that are moving fast are operating. But kind of switching back. So I because I think certainty is like something that a lot of entrepreneurs, I think everyone at some point has been in a place of uncertainty. And it's, it's a state that you want to get out of as soon as possible. So just want to say that this stuff is possible with data, but switching back to the exit stuff too. You know, when we're talking about the situation, you know, with the private equity and buyouts and then rolling over the <laughs> rolling up the industry, notwithstanding, what's kind of the current situation that you see with with law firms when it comes to shutting down or potentially moving away or moving away from practice? Actually seeing a lot more firms being sold. This is this is something that we didn't see 15, 20 years ago. And boomers are starting to retire. Younger people are understanding that they can actually buy that client base. They can buy that firm name, that there's an asset there. And the boomers realize that they've built something. They've built something of value. There's some great people out there that are helping to create a marketplace for it. Tom Lunfesti of the Law Practice Exchange is amazing. You've had somebody on your show that does this. And so, you know, going out, and selling your firm or going out and buying your firm is a great thing to do. I had a client and we were on our way to a conference in Mexico and I'm sitting next to her at DFW and she's like, I think I'm going to buy a firm. I'm like, okay. She's like, I'm going to buy one in Atlanta. I'm like, you live down on the Mexico border. Like, what are, what are you talking about? Where did you find this thing? She's like, well, I was Googling a couple of weekends ago and I found this and I'm like, Okay, what are you doing? Well, it turns out I happened to know the firm that she wanted to acquire. I knew the people who were listing the firm who were doing the deal. So I'm like, oh, this is, this is legitimate. But she was doing it because she was acquiring a firm in a market she wanted to be in that was a specialization that was adjacent to her own, but enlarged her practice. It was a great strategic move for her. And people are understanding that's a great way to grow a firm. Yeah, and like it's one of those things, it's such a shortcut too, because it's like, I think also is once you get to the point where a firm's large enough, it's like, you know, you, you think less about saving money and think about saving time. And I think there's also kind of been a cultural moment. I think the, the narrative around the bloom sort of off the rose on the, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, social network, you know, be the pioneer, start everything from scratch. Because like, look, if you can cut a two, three, five, 10 year ramp up by just putting a little bit of extra cash up front, provided you've got the dry powder because you're doing everything right in the firm to begin with, like it becomes a really attractive option. 
Well, and let me tell you, any deal that is done right should cash flow itself. Mm. So yeah, you might be out a down payment, but it should cash flow its own its own debt service. The SBA will loan you up to I think it's five million, seven million dollars. Okay, that's something wow. like that. The a lot of these sales are are owner financed. So basically, you're going to buy this law firm and that law firm owner is going to get paid out over the next three years. So that law firm should actually pay for itself. It shouldn't be a burden on you beyond the time it takes for you to now run a second law firm. Yeah. And I think you can probably say for everyone, it's like, you know, the situation that a lot of these people are in are, again, I think everyone in their entrepreneurial journey comes upon a time like this. Just like, I would honestly rather just trade this for a big pile of money or even shoot <laughs> some smaller amount of money every single month without just not having to deal with this headache anymore. And I think it's people who choose to do that. But I think it's also people who are just like, you know, at the point where they're realizing that the retirement plan for, for most small business owners isn't as defined as it is for our, our partners in the corporate world. Right. Well, so that law firm that I was telling you about that in Atlanta, she had had her second child. She had hit all these big milestones in her law firm that she wanted to hit. And she's like, you know what? I kind of want to be a stay-at-home mom. Yeah. Awesome. So she did. Can she go start another law firm if she wants to in five or 10 years when all of her children are in school? Why not? But that's not what she wants to do right now. But I mean, how awesome that she sold it and got paid for it as opposed to just shutting it down or being saddled with it for the next 10 years and, you know, being torn between where her passion was and being at home with her children Mm. and that law firm and her employees are taken care of and her clients are taken care of. And she's got a nice tiny pile of cash. Yeah, that's fantastic. But like, I'm sure it's not kind of a decision that somebody can make on a dime, right? So like if somebody wants to have the optionality to do something like this, what kind of steps would they want to be taking to get there? So again, it goes back to creating a really sellable firm. You want you want a law firm that is making money that does not 100% revolve around you as the owner. If you are the only person who can work the cases, that's a problem. If you are the only person that can bring in the cases, that's a problem. If all of the marketing of the firm revolves around you, your name, and your image, okay, that's going to be kind of hard because unless you find somebody else named Brooke Lively, who was a blonde of about the same age, <laughs> it's yeah. hard to sell brooklively.com. Yeah. You'll notice my company is not named brooklively.com. Yeah. You know, you've got that. How good is your team? Do you have a good leadership team? Do you have, are you teaching and training the next generation of leaders in your firm? Are there people that will be able to step up? What does, let's see, wait, we've talked about finances. We've talked about marketing. We've talked about people. What is the culture of your firm? Mm. You know, are you all living the core values? Do you have the right people in there, right? So not only do the people you have in there have like, a path to growth and leadership that we have the right people in there. Mm-hmm. So it's really looking at your at your firm very holistically and understanding what are the different parts of your firm that need to be in tip-top shape? Do you have good data? Like what does your technology look like? And this is one that's hard for attorneys because I mean, really, you were talking about 
your scribe. If we hadn't dragged attorneys into the, you know, 21st century, they would still be back there, you know, with a stone tablet and a chisel. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Like, as far as these things, too, just to kind of think about what the the counter, I'm, I'm, I'm like seeing how the whole thing fits together. Because if you think about the opposite of what having these things in place is bad employees, are you spending your time babysitting? <laughs> I'm not going to say bad marketing, but I mean, if, if you're on the on the hook for producing a new uh, Instagram or Facebook live every you know, couple of weeks, and that's yeah. your problem, then like, yeah, I mean, if, none of these situations. You're the only one out there getting the new clients. Yeah. You can't call a vacation for two weeks. Yeah. And look, God forbid, I, I think it's pretty rare to see past the seven figure level, but it's just yet another reason why, you know, the tried and true referral based method of, of marketing is not really a place that you want to be if you want to have an asset. I mean, look, if that's something you want to be running and you're fine with not taking vacation or ever exiting your firm, then power to you, go for it. But like, you know, it's yet another reason to get these things into a more predictable place, right? And referral based marketing is awesome and it will get you to a certain level and shouldn't be sneezed at. And then once you get there, it should be maintained, but you got to layer on the rest of it because it can't be all about you. Yeah, 100%. And like, I think it's probably the closest thing that you get to seed capital, <laughs> like your average law firm. It's what you're leaving from your last job. But again, like realize that that's first base. That's not like where you're supposed to wind up. Yeah. And some people are able to, you know, I think probably one of the worst things that could happen is a strong enough referral strategy where you don't have to do it until it's too late. Because if you want to get to the situation where you want the decision to, you know, move on or get to different things, it can be tough if you're used to it, but kind of switching gears into like the ramp up, right? So what, you know, if, if somebody wants to sell for, I mean, I'm going to do an outrageous timeline. So like if you wanted to put your firm up for sale next week, when should have you started preparing for this from a books perspective, from a systems perspective? What's what's kind of the path that you recommend people taking if that's something they want to do? Three to five years ago. Okay, three to five so years. Here's the thing. Anyone buying a firm is going to ask for at least three years of financials. Because financials are going to show everything that's happening in your law firm. So you've got to produce three years of financials, three years of tax documents, three years. If your three years aren't really beautiful, it may take you a couple of years to get to the good three years. Yeah. You need three good years specifically, right? <laughs> yeah. So, and if you've got two good years and one not so good year, let me tell you what's going to happen. That buyer is going to average together the three years. Yeah. They're not going to go, oh, I'm going to ignore that first year. No, 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 no. They're going to average it together. So, you know, three to five years. Okay. And then kind of going back to the timeline we were talking about earlier, the next five to 10 with this potential, you know, PE roll-up coming. I mean, that basically gives you two years to really get started if you want to be ready for prime time. Maybe eight, depending on how fast these things go. Yeah. No, it's, uh, so, you know, just something to kind of keep in mind too. But like, I think it's just such an interesting, all encompassing thing because it's like when you're starting with the core stuff of having the data, it's just like there's so many different places that you could potentially optimize it. But just like having the knowledge that there's always going to be something that you can know to focus on is, I think, something that is so far from the reality from a lot of, you know, I'm not going to even say law owners, I'm going to say small business owners in general. So just having the, the ability to do that stuff is super valuable. So, um, and then kind of like bringing us full circle as far as how, what, uh, one could be able to uh, do in order to get started for a potential exit. Can you think of any resources that you could recommend for that, Brooke? Actually, <laughs> you should mention that because I have a book coming out soon, but it's not out yet. Yeah, And we're kind of holding it until early spring. However, if you want, you can go to my website and download the first chapter. If you want to read the first chapter of the book, and then we'll notify you 
when we do put the book on sale. So you can go to kathcap.com forward slash LFGP, Law Firm Growth Podcast, LFGP. And uh, and you, you can download the first chapter. Okay, awesome. And then definitely too, just as far as like any other way to get in your world too, if this is resonating with people that are listening to like, do you have, you know, email list, any sort of like, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Yeah, you know, going to capcap.com, you can book a call with me if you want to talk to me. It's right there. If you can sign up for our newsletter, we've got all kinds of things that you can do. Uh, but I think capcap.com is the best place to get hold of us. Awesome. Brooke, this has been an awesome conversation. I have to applaud you for taking attorneys into the greater business world and getting some sanity into a lot of the chaos. It's good for everyone to have an understanding that there is a higher level to this. If you are in pain, know that this is not how it's supposed to be. And there's ways to do this and you can start right now. But um, I just think it's really, really important to, to paint what that higher level looks like for a lot of people. So um, thank you again for coming on the podcast. And for everybody else, I'll see you guys next Tuesday at 8 a.m. Eastern on the Law Firm Growth Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Law Firm Growth Podcast. For show notes, free resources, and more, head on over to casefuel.com slash podcast. Looking forward to catching up on the next episode.